Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hi, everyone. Dan Amender here. On behalf of all of us at Cardiners, we are thrilled to bring you our Decipher the Guidelines series for the 2022 AHA, ACC, HFSA Guideline for the Management of Heart Failure. Get ready for short and bite-sized, high-impact, clinical vignette-based questions designed to highlight core concepts based on cutting-edge evidence that are relevant to your practice. The cases we use are hypothetical and for educational purposes only. This series was developed by Cardiners and created in collaboration with the American Heart Association and the Heart Failure Society of America. It was created by 30 trainees spanning college students through advanced fellowship with mentorship from Dr. Anu Lala, Dr. Robert Menz, and Dr. Nancy Schweitzer. We thank Dr. Judy Bizanson and Dr. Elliot Antman for their guidance. So join us as we get to learn about the guidelines and beyond from 16 leading faculty experts. With that said, it's time to get nerdy. The following question refers to Section 7.4 of the 2022 AHA ACC HFSA Guideline for the Management of Heart Failure. The question is asked by New York Medical College medical student and cardiac intern Akiva Rosenspike, answered first by Cornell Cardiology Fellow and Cardiac Fit Ambassador Dr. Jaya Kanduri, and then by expert faculty Dr. Randy Starling. Dr. Starling is Professor of Medicine and an Advanced Heart Failure and Transplant Cardiologist at the Cleveland Clinic, where he was formerly the Section Head of Heart Failure. Chairman of Cardiovascular Medicine and member of the Cleveland Clinic Board of Governors. Dr. Starling is also past president of the Heart Failure Society of America. Dr. Starling was among our earliest faculty guests here on the Cardiners podcast and has since been just such a valuable source of support, mentorship, and inspiration. Dr. Starling, thank you once again for joining us on the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here tonight with the Cardio Nerds team. Thanks, Amit. Hey, Jaya. I have a patient for whom we're discussing the utility of an ICD, and I was wondering your thoughts on the indications of ICD implantation in patients. Here goes. Mr. D is a 50-year-old man who presented two months ago with palpitations and new-onset bilateral lower extremity swelling. Review of systems was negative for prior syncope. On transthoracic echocardiogram, he had an LVEF of 40% with moderate RV dilation and dysfunction. EKG showed inverted T waves and low amplitude signals just after the QRS and leads V1 to V3. Ambulatory monitoring revealed several episodes of non-sustained ventricular tachycardia with a left bundle branch block morphology. He was initiated on GDMT and underwent genetic testing that revealed two desmosomal gene variants associated with arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy, or ARVC. Is the following statement true or false? ICD implantation is inappropriate at this time because his LVEF is greater than 35%. Thanks, Akiva. So indeed, the statement that ICD implantation is inappropriate with an EF of greater than 35% is actually false. ICD implantation is reasonable to decrease sudden cardiac death in patients with genetic arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy with high-risk features of sudden death in those who have an LVEF of less than or equal to 45%. And this is a class 2A recommendation. While the heart failure guidelines do not define high-risk features of sudden death, the 2019 Heart Rhythm Society Expert Consensus Statement on Evaluation, Risk Stratification, and Management of Arrhythmogenic Cardiomyopathy identify major and minor risk factors for ventricular arrhythmias as follows. Major criteria include presence of non-sustained ventricular tachycardia, inducibility of ventricular tachycardia during EP study, and left ventricular ejection fraction of less than or equal to 49%. Minor criteria include male sex, 
greater than a thousand premature ventricular contractions over a 24 hour period, right ventricular dysfunction, proband status, or two or more desmosomal variants. According to the Heart Rhythm Society statement, high risk is defined as having either three major, two major, and two minor, or one major and four minor risk factors for a class 2A recommendation for primary prevention ICD in this population. Based on this criteria, our patient has two major risk factors with presence of non-sustained ventricular tachycardia and an LVEF of less than or equal to 49% and also has three minor risk factors, which include male sex, RV dysfunction, and the two desmosomal variants, or ventricular arrhythmias. Therefore, ICD implantation for primary prevention of sudden cardiac death is reasonable in this situation. Decisions around ICD implantation for primary prevention remain challenging and depend on estimated risk for sudden cardiac death, comorbidities, and patient preferences, and should be guided by shared decision-making weighing the possible benefits against the risks, especially in younger patients. Therefore, our main takeaway is that in patients with genetic arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy with high-risk features of sudden death with an LVEF of less than or equal to 45%, implantation of ICD is reasonable. Dr. Starling, I would love to hear your thoughts on how you would approach shared decision-making regarding ICD implantation in this type of patient, as well as how you would approach genetic counseling and family screening. Thank you. And I want to acknowledge that this was an absolutely terrific presentation. I think everything was spot on. So let me bring this back into the context of an experienced clinician. The first point that I'll make is if you're a heart failure cardiologist like I am, you will work very, very closely with your electrophysiology colleagues. Having said that, Many patients that come to my clinic for consultation, ironically, are coming to ask if they should have a defibrillator. They've been recommended to have a defibrillator. They have questions. And when they come and speak to a heart failure specialist, I'm not the surgeon, I'm not the operator, but I'm a person that's very interested in the well-being of that individual. So that's a frequent consultation that we receive. And having watched the evolution over 25 years of indications for defibrillators, I think in the setting of HEFREF, it's very straightforward. But there's some subgroups like arrhythmogenic, like sarcoidosis, like LV non-compaction, where there are modifiers. And this particular patient that has ARVC really exemplifies the indications when a patient has an ejection fraction over 35%, but it has other major and minor criteria that warrant the use of a defibrillator. And we should always acknowledge the fact that there's primary prevention and there's secondary prevention. And in that context, all bets are off. If a patient has had sudden death, other than that, we begin an investigation to try to elucidate what were the factors that we can identify, whether it's a long QT or something positive with respect to genetics. If it's primary prevention, then that becomes a little bit more challenging. Oftentimes, these patients are not ultra sick, but whether it's hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or other situations, We know they're at high risk, potentially, for sudden cardiac death. So genetic testing, we feel, is extraordinarily important. 
Not so much for the patient, especially if they're in the setting of secondary prevention, but for their family members. So actually, just today, one of my patients who had a positive genetic study who went on to have a cardiac transplant had her daughter come and see me who had a normal echo, but on her MRI, she had some subtle findings with fibrosis. So these are all clues that alert the clinician to the importance of continued surveillance and watching these patients very, very carefully. So I think the take-homes here are, for garden variety patients, the indications for defibrillators are straightforward. For the subset with the more unusual conditions, sarcoidosis, LV non-compaction, ARVC, it's important to be aware of these nuances to work with your electrophysiology colleagues. And finally, I think the issue of shared decision-making is critical. I think many patients are intimidated and don't respond in a positive way when the discussion of a defibrillator initially comes up. So it requires a lot of patience and careful discussion with the patient, the family, in collaboration with your electrophysiology consultant. Thank you. Wow. What a wonderful discussion. Thank you so much, Jaya and Dr. Starling, for your insight on the nuances of the use of ICD in patients with various cardiomyopathies. 